0: We discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones.
1: Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Tara Schumann. Tara is a public high school English and history teacher. In August 2012, Tara was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. She was 32 years old with no family history. She immediately began to write about her journey as a way to cope and update friends and family. Thousands of people all across the world soon began to follow Tara's blog, www.tarabeatscancer.com. Tara is a member of the Patient Family Advisory Council at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and helps to raise funds for cancer research and patient care year-round. She's the proud founder of the nonprofit organization Writing Saves Lives and a true believer in the healing powers of writing. Tara lives in Canton, Massachusetts with her husband, Brian, and their two children, Teddy and Annabelle. She's grateful for each day and believes deeply in the value of truth, humor, hope, love and hard work. Tara recently published a memoir, which we'll be talking plenty about today, Hope is a Good Breakfast, which she describes as a dream come true. Welcome Tara. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for your wonderful book. I I um it's a it's a sort of book that I particularly appreciate which is um a a personal story that is so open that it becomes universal. Uh, uh, there was so much familiar to me from working with uh, women with cancer, in particular, and then there were things that were so completely you. And I just really enjoyed it.
2: Oh, thank you.
1: Um, one thing that really stood out is the compelling need you had to start writing as you got diagnosed, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because it really shone through at many different points in the book just how essential that was to you.
2: Sure, yeah, um, I I really didn't do it, um, you know, I didn't have a plan to do it. It was uh, the first, you know, um, night after I was diagnosed. uh, I was up really early, and I had young kids, and I think no matter you know how much support you get um, when you're going through something like this or something really hard, you're going to find yourself alone many times, and it's kind of you know what? How can you get through those really difficult um, minutes when you're by yourself, and what can you do to just cope and and, you know survive them with some sanity? And so I had um, I sat down and actually written an email to my friends and family explaining that I had been diagnosed and that email had been oddly and surprisingly cathartic to write. And so once I had done that, the next morning when I was up super, super early and didn't know, you know, what do you do at 3 in the morning um, with a, you know, house full of people who still deserve their sleep, um, I decided I would, uh, I wanted to write another email, except I, you know, at that point didn't know if people really wanted these emails or who to send them to, and so I said, you know, I'll do a blog, because I I know that's a place where then people can go if they want to go, and then they don't have to go there if they don't want to, so I just started that, and I started just cataloging what was happening day by day, and it just became, like, just truly one of the most important parts of my treatment, and I think um, we don't talk enough about kind of the mental health piece of going through something like this, and it was just you know such a huge piece of the mental health piece of it. So, I'm so glad to have kind of stumbled upon it in a weird way. That's so familiar
1: from this show, from any kind of very um, profound loss experience, which I consider cancer to be, is this kind of sense of of following your own nose, you know, <laughs> not really knowing quite where you're going, but um, being compelled in certain directions. That's just uh, so many people talk about that in those moments where you're kind of stripped down to something bottom line like that.
2: So true. And I think once I, you know, when I started, I, I, I was thinking, I've never done anything like this before. I'm not a writer. And, you know, once you start to dig down and really think about who you are, you know, I, I had been a writer, you know, it was what I didn't, the proudest things i you know, done in high school were things I had written. And when I was younger, you know, I would write kids books all the time. And, you know, it was, it was a part of me. It just kind of um, boiled to the surface for this reason. But, um you know, it, it, what, I think you're exactly right. It kind of just strips away, you know, any kind of inhibition you might have, and you just get to what is it that makes you feel better? And for me, it was writing.
1: And the other thing I just uh, really noticed about that is uh, it's very, very common in my experience for people to really struggle with immediately letting the people in their lives know. That they've been yeah. diagnosed, but it seemed as if you got past that very quickly. And I, when I was reading your book, I was really curious about that. Is it that you just were very used to being open in difficult circumstances with the people in your life, or was it was it particular to that moment? What do you make of that?
2: Yeah, I think I think I'm definitely very open um, about everything. I, I find that it just. It's helpful to me to be open, it's helpful to other people you know to kind of be able to have honest conversations and so I think that was absolutely who I was um but also so much of it was really just practical and that you know i I couldn't hide it i mean I you know I had a full- time job and all of a sudden i I wasn't able to go to work, so you know that wasn't something I could hide, you know, hide. Right, um, right. And so, you know, I knew I would lose my hair, uh, you know, and so I have you know, I had young kids, so that wasn't going to be something I was going to hide. And so it was more just kind of a, you know, I, I knew what, what was coming and I knew that um, I'm I'm just very open book and it wasn't, there wasn't really going to be any way for me with my kind of personality to be able to get around what had happened. And so there was that practical part of it. And then also just that I really didn't want it to fall on other people. And I thought that, you know, if it fell on my mother or my husband or, you know, to kind of always be the one that has to give all the updates, that's a big burden and that's just not something... They had enough burdens <laughs> dealing with me and, um, you know, what they did to help me through that, that they didn't need also to be the liaison, you know, between me and everyone else. So I thought that that was something I could do and, um, and I was, you know, I was happy to be able to do that. So it, it had some practical... Um, you know, parts to it too, but yeah, it would um, it would be a hard thing to, it would have been a hard thing to hide,
1: <laughs> right? Well, it was just how how immediate it was that really got my attention, you know, yeah, and yeah, no, that's and, a great point. Yeah, and and you've stumbled over something I noticed a lot in the book, which is uh, I didn't perceive you as someone who was resistant to help. You let people help mm-hmm. you. And then at the same time, you were protective of doing what you could. And that's a very interesting combination that might be a little particular to you. I find people generally are one or the other. Um, you know, either they surrender to help and, and just let everyone else worry about themselves, or they don't surrender and are busy protecting. But you seem to find some balance there. Uh oh. Between the two, um, was that a conscious thing on your part or just sort of what felt right to you?
2: Yeah, no, I never really even thought about it until you just said that, which is so nice. Um, and I think that's true. And I think that I really, I, I also had, you know, learned from people around me. And I think that, that I learned a lot that, you know, people would say, you know, that it makes them feel better to help. And so I think there was the idea that, you know, people do feel very helpless in these types of situations. And, you know, for, for them to have a night where they're going to cook us dinner, you know, that's where they can put their energy and where they can say, okay, I can't, I can't cure cancer. I can't take this pain away, but I can make a meal and I can bring it over and that will make, that makes them feel better. And so I think there was, I definitely understood that, you know, people all need their outlet and, you know, I had mine and you know, certain things like that could be theirs, and so I did kind of quickly adjust to to kind of surrendering to that and to just appreciating it and to, you know, hoping and praying that I would be able to do the same for people one day, and, you know, and I think that's Oh, Are you, thank you. I never really uh, thought of it that way. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: uh, you know, that, that what you just described, uh, which, which I sum up as thank you is enough, um, <laughs> took yeah. me several years to learn. So I think it's quite a blessing that that became immediately apparent to you because that removes a whole layer of worry. Yeah, uh, you know, that maybe people don't really want to be helping or all the different things we can do in our minds. You didn't have to struggle too much with that, and that does seem like a blessing to me. Yes. You know, I'd love to have people hear a little bit of the voice of your book because it's great. <laughs> that that way of you speaking really touched me. Could you read the section that's from the beginning of the book? Sure. Uh, from the preface? uh uh-huh, From the prologue? Yeah sure, um, okay. So, you can if you have anything to say in advance, be my guest.
2: Uh, yeah no, no no I can I can read it. So the um, the prologue I begin every section of the book with a little kind of quote that relates to what will come next, and the prologue quote is a Francis Bacon quote, and he was a philosopher, scientist, and author um, from the Renaissance, and he said, "Hope is a good breakfast, but it is a bad supper." And there was something about that quote the moment I saw it, and I had been, you know, working on trying to figure out what to do with the blog. It had gotten kind of so big and, and really hard to, to kind of reach it because it was not in chronological order. And, I was, and I, at the moment I saw that, I said, this, this is what the book's going to be named like mm-hmm. it just it hit me and I think it's a really interesting quote and so I really kind of talk about that quote throughout the preface so um, or the prologue of the book so I'll yeah I can read a little bit just um, tell me when to stop or if you want me to kind of chop out some sections I can read a shorter version of it <laughs> <So> just, <laughs> go right ahead <laughs> we'll see how it goes <laughs> okay so the book, uh, the book title the kind of subtitle of the prologue is somehow coexisting I never understood the concept until I got cancer hope. I had heard about it quite a bit in quotes and on Oprah. I had observed how important hope was to people who were going through hard times, but I had no clue of its significance until I was 32 years old, diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. No family history, no reason, no words, at least not at first. It was August 2012. I had just celebrated my sister Rachel's wedding and the day after my sixth wedding anniversary to my college sweetheart, Brian. We had two children, Teddy, who was four, and Annabel who was one. Brian and I both had full-time jobs, a mortgage on an imperfect house that we thought was perfect, and an assumption that we would grow old together. We may have even felt entitled to the growing old part. Then a radiologist told me that I had cancer. My world froze in a hellish sort of way. Darkness set in. In that cold and lonely place, I felt too sick with worry to eat. My relationship with eating and exercising had been rocky for years, but this had nothing to do with body image. This had to do with the fact that I was so nauseated with fear that I couldn't stomach the thought of so much as a cracker. I started to shed weight almost immediately. As I watched my body shrink, I figured that cancer was killing me. Cancer equals death. At least that's what I thought when I was diagnosed. More darkness, then a light. A few days after my diagnosis, I felt something I had never felt before. Hope. Hope. As I write about herein, I found hope in my sister's tearless eyes and in the empathy of two nurses at the breast care center of the community hospital where my mother worked. It will be okay. You will fight this. That hope, that despite cancer, I still had a life to live, was one of the most precious gifts I had ever received. It will be okay. I will fight this. The night after I found hope, after I tasted it, I ate a small dinner. I don't even remember what it was, but I know it was more than I had eaten in days. In the darkest times of my cancer journey, many of which I write about in the pages before you, I clung to hope with white, shivering knuckles. I also came to realize that I needed more than hope to find peace with what was happening to me, and even more so with what could happen to me down the road. I came to agree with Francis Bacon, a 16th century English philosopher, scientist, author, and the father of empiricism. Hope is a good breakfast, but it is a bad supper. I originally conceived of this book as a way to spread a message of hope, I wanted to share with others, particularly those who have been thrown into a dark cave by cancer or by any other cruel reality, the possibility that they could still have light, that what we thought was our end may not be our end after all. You will fight this. I wanted to write a book that would leave readers with an implicit and humble message that I did it and others can do it, when with enough hope, we can all find happiness beyond the darkness of a really crappy time. We can beat cancer. I wanted to believe it. I had to believe it. Over time, however, something in me changed. What it it meant to beat cancer changed. Maybe I'm not a fighter after all. The evolution happened slowly and inadvertently. It happened as I observed with a keener eye than ever before life around me, the mundane, the extraordinary, the struggles, the beauty, the tragedy, all the intersections, rotaries, and detours these phenomena take. It happened as I watched my friends and family help to make me well again. It happened as I watched old friends and new ones face metastatic disease with grace that both inspired me to be strong and crumbled me into a heap of uncontrollable tears. It happened as I watched people I cared about pass on from not only cancer, but from heart attack, ALS, and complications due to cystic fibrosis. The evolution of my hope came into focus as I watched my daughter learn to sing and make jokes and my son hug her every morning before he got on the school bus. It intensified as I fell in love with my husband more than ever before and as I witnessed a strength in my mother that may forever go unmatched. Maybe part of fighting means accepting. Mm. At 32 years old, I started the long journey of accepting the harsh and liberating reality that no one's life, including my own, would last forever. I felt fear and freedom in the realization that I couldn't control how I died, but I could control, at least in part, how I lived. An odd and unexpected understanding... And so beating cancer invo- evolved into something more than a medical update about how a tumor had or had not progressed. Beating oh. cancer became less about the physical and more about the spiritual. It became less about tomorrow and more about today.
1: That's that's very very well spoken. Oh, uh, thank you. I, I I certainly went through the same progression. Not about my own cancer, but about living with someone else's cancer is very, very familiar to me. Yeah. Um, that that um that evolution from um cure being the only hopeful mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. Yep. to life being the only hopeful thing
2: <laughs> or yeah. living However as long as you get is. to. Yep. <laughs> it's true. And I think
1: that's that's maybe more poignant. Uh you know, we both went through that with um Young children, and yes. I, and I think that's a very it's a hard lesson to learn in that circumstance. I think
2: it is, uh, and I think you know having going through something like this with young kids, I think is you know it makes it easier in a lot of ways, and it makes it harder in a lot of ways. You know, I think every kind of stage of life that you're faced with this kind of a you know of a challenge is uh, has its own you know its its own issues, and um, you know kids. Kind of put it all in per- into perspective for good and for bad. I mean, I think the the most pain I ever felt was when I was looking at them, you know, and um, that those were definitely the hardest times. There were some times where you know we were putting them to bed, and I like I couldn't even I couldn't put them to bed because I couldn't you know face them and and that pain that associated with looking at them and thinking that I'd have to leave them, um, you know, or may have to leave them. But I think that you know at the same time, you know when. My, you know, I I never really wore my wig, but I kept it behind a chair on the floor in my, um, on the little wig stand in my bedroom, and you know, one night my four-year-old comes down and he's got it on his head and he's doing funny dances with it. You know, it's like you can't, you know, they're just things that you can't, you you know, they they make everything so much better in so many ways. So, um,
1: yeah. And and, and so, you know, uh, we can talk about this more after the break, but I found with the kids that people would be thinking, oh, this will be so hard for them. But actually, it was much, much, much harder for the adults. The kids were very straightforward, Oh, you sure. know, just give them the facts, and that's and that does it. Let's talk oh, a little true. more about I mean, that when we come back. Definitely, li- listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. To like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter—all of those things we do these days. Sign up for my email list, and to find Tara Schumann, go to tarabeatscancer.com. Be back soon.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious of your dreams listen every thursday afternoon at 6 p.m eastern time and 3 p.m pacific time on the voice america health and wellness channel ouch what do you think of when you think of dental procedures well when you think about it the teeth and the rest of the body are strongly connected what happens in one part affects the other in the Tooth Body Connection with host Dr. Don Ewing, we'll explain more about these concepts as well as discuss the role that your teeth play in your overall health. You'll learn about amalgams and how removing them the wrong way can be toxic to your body. Tune in Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness.
0: We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio
3: Network live, wherever you go, on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Tara Schumann, whose blog, Tara Beats Cancer, which she wrote out of a compelling need to name her experience, became the book, Hope is a Good Breakfast. And before the break, Tara, we were talking about how kids make it, make something like what you experienced, a big, you know, big negative event, both easier and harder, which I really appreciated because, um, you know, I never realized that there were the two aspects until I lived through it myself, mm-hmm. that something could be made both harder and easier um, by something like facing cancer with kids. You know, I mean, I, I think, um, for instance, my kids kept things lively and entertaining and you were talking about that a bit with the wig but also um kept me getting down to basics in a way in in order to explain to a a two-and-a-half-year-old you really have to get to a basic level uh... yeah and and we could we could benefit from getting to that level a little more often I think do you agree
2: Oh, it's so true. That's why I love kids in general uh-huh. they They just ask those real questions, and you know they they wanna know about heaven and they wanna know about you know how you know where do you go when you die and what will you always be my mother and you know the questions that i mean physically feel like they are breaking your heart <laughs> um you know, but at the same time force you um to really think about important things that you know it probably is good for all of us to think about, as painful as it is. So, um, yeah, and and kids, I think anyone with kids knows just the the highs and lows that kids bring, you know, in (laughs) in a matter of one minute, (laughs) you know. Very similar. For
1: sure. Um, But but that aspect of really having to... uh, I mean, I, I guess both of us don't have a point of comparison because we di- did go through z- through those experiences with kids. But having to really figure out what you believe in order to explain it really resonated with my experience. Um, and, it, and it sounds as if an, – and, of course, I think any crisis has a tendency to make us think about things differently – but um, that sense of sense of needing to explain the possibilities really, really struck me in the book.
2: It's so true, and and I couldn't have done that alone. And I had, you know, the the wonderful woman I call my therapy lady in the book. I mean, she helped me with that because I, you know, my initial gut reaction, which is, you know, to be open with them, but to not use the word cancer. Um, you know, she, she explains that, you know, in fact, we should use the word cancer. And, you know, I wouldn't, there, there's a lot of things that, you know, I, I had to learn and I needed to talk to, um, to people who knew more about this. And, and so I was, you know, lucky enough to be able to find those people and, uh, and learn from them. And I couldn't have, you know, I, I you know, no one does it well or <laughs> perfectly, but um, I feel like I couldn't have done it um, gracefully at all without that help.
1: Well that brings up an interesting point because um working with people with cancer, I notice a, i I end up being with a lot of people who were um wouldn't have considered therapy environments and I'm using yeah. that in the broader sense, like support groups one on one counseling you know all of that meditation class, whatever it might yeah. be, wouldn't have considered it, and then in those um moments of extremity, uh, you know, f- such as for you, it becomes like a life raft.
2: Definitely. And I think there's something, you know, liberating. And, you know, the bottom line to all of us, I think, is we at some point, we all kind of learn our own vulnerability. And um, and I think, you know, cancer definitely does that in a very abrupt sort of way. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I think that once you realize that, you know, we're all vulnerable and that can, you know, be incredibly difficult to digest and it can also kind of give us a confidence and a strength that we maybe didn't have before or hadn't boiled to the surface before. Um, is really helpful too. And so to just say, you know, I mean, it, you know, let's try this, like hope maybe it will help, maybe it won't. And if it doesn't, that's okay. You know, uh-huh. maybe there's something else. Um, how, but how, yeah, how, that was, that was my right. experience for sure
1: well and the other thing that that really struck me is your the first therapy type environment you were in was very unhelpful but you tried again.
2: Barely really tried it again. <laughs> yes um yes it was it was really not a good fit and um you know it was scary and upsetting and uh, and I think that you know again because I have just people around me that are wonderful and helped me, you know, I wouldn't have tried it again, to be honest. Um, But I think they, you know, pushed me and said, like, one one more try, let's give this one more try, and, you know, Mm happened to really hit the jackpot on the second try. Um, But I do think that, you know, that is one thing I, I don't, you know, like to give advice, really, so... Explicitly, but I think one piece of advice I do like to give people is, you know, try different things because you really don't know, you know, and maybe you don't think of yourself as a writer, but, you know, try sitting down with a pen and a piece of paper and see what it's like. Or, you know, maybe you don't consider yourself someone who would go to a support group, but just sit and listen and see, you know. Like, I just think it's important uh, for us to just try different things because there's so many different options often out there, and so many people have started you know, organizations and groups and things that can be so helpful to people. And if we just kind of let our guard down and say, I'm just going to give this a try, it's not going to solve all my problems. But, you know, it could just be helpful. It could introduce me to someone, you know, that that could be a friend, you know. It, so mm. sometimes that's just a really helpful thing.
1: I think that's a very important thing you're saying, especially in terms of the fact that some of the things that end up feeling helpful are very counterintuitive. For instance, sitting in a room of people who also have cancer, uh, True. It, doesn't, it doesn't automatically sound very helpful when you're thinking about it.
2: No. But, it <laughs> but almost
1: but universally, people who do it find it helpful.
2: You do, and it, and I, I was definitely one of those that you know that that took me a very long time. I didn't go to support groups. I didn't do anything. and I kind of got stubborn and said, you know, I found my way, and you know, my way is writing by myself, and that's kind of what I need to do. And only in the last year or two have I started to do more, um, you know, in talking with young adults in groups, and um, and there's just such a there's such a bond there, and you know, there's kind of just a camaraderie, and it's. It's, uh, it's really special, and I think that, that you know, in, in all sorts of different contexts, whether it's cancer or some of the other things, you know, you can't feel that sort of energy unless you're in the room and, and you experience it. And I'm glad that I've, you know, moved more towards being able to do that.
1: Mm. You know, one thing I, I very much appreciated in the book is that uh, it wasn't, um, there, there were heroic moments, but it wasn't heroic in the sense that you were willing to talk about having a rough time, mm. which I think is so important, uh, because there's this sort of heroic cancer patient um, fantasy out there in a way. Mm. <laughs> That really puts a lot of pressure on people and keeps them from being honest and and getting the kind of real support they need. And I was thinking about that with this second section that you were going to share, that um, it it really captures that sense of not knowing how you're going to do it and how very hard it is. Would you read
2: that part? Yeah, sure. Um, So this one, it's in a chapter that I call Holding Pattern. Um, Okay, so it says, I could never rightfully describe how difficult the weeks leading up to my surgery were, how terrifying it felt to know that aggressive cancer cells were multiplying inside me without knowing exactly where they lurked or how much time I had left. Several mornings I woke up wanting to shout from my rooftop, how am I ever going to do this, because I honestly didn't know. Then again, I didn't have the energy to climb to the rooftop. The most accurate way to describe the awful period of waiting is to compare it to a scenario I've heard about on the local news. Passengers stuck on a runway for hours because their plane can't take off but can't taxi back to the gate either. I hate to fly, and confined spaces make my blood pressure immediately rise, so the stuck on the runway situation feels torturous to me, much like I felt in the weeks leading up to my double mastectomy as I waited for a complete, uh, sorry, for a more complete diagnosis and for the chance to fight the deadly intruder. I felt trapped and defenseless. I couldn't move forward and couldn't go back. I was stuck in a holding pattern, forced to wait and sit through a process I would never understand. Those around me seemed calm, though I wondered if inside they were freaking out like I was. The captains appeared to have control and while I trusted them, I didn't know them and they had my life in their hands. I wanted to scream, to flail around like a total fool, flare, punch things, try with all my might to pry the door open and run across the tarmac back to safety but I couldn't, partly because there was no safety back there. For five weeks, as everyone around me transitioned from summer to a new school year, I had to sit still and pretend to be composed. I had to act brave for the sake of everyone around me, and truthfully, for the sake of myself.
1: I think that really captures that sense of, you know, even even within hearing what was going on inside there's a kind of acting brave just to get from one minute <laughs> to the next. And that, totally. that just seems so familiar to me uh, from descriptions by many, many people, you know, uh, where people say it's not actually courage exactly, except in the sense that if you do it anyway when you're fearful, that's courage. Mm. But it's it's sort of what other choice is there almost.
2: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: and also just, um, I find that You were talking about how important it is to pay attention to mental health and the impact Mm -hmm. of that. Uh, I've noticed that people do well, uh, not well, but they're able to uh, respond to what's happening quite well until there's something that is completely, that there's nothing for them to do about it at all. Mm -hmm. Um, That. Even when there's a a bad moment, if there's something you can do to respond to it, people tend to be able to handle that. But it's if it's so true,
2: yeah, uh, it, that's familiar to you. Definitely, I think that's why writing is so helpful for me because, you know, I could I could process things and think, you know, I can't understand. Ninety-nine percent of what's going on right now, but I can understand that one percent, and I'm going to write about that. And what am I going to write about? You know, and and so to kind of have, I think you know, my mind just doesn't turn off, unfortunately, Uh unfortunately, I suppose. And so you know, when you're, you know, I mean, I remember so many of these moments, but one just just popped into my head now is you know lying on an MRI table, and you know, and and just you know thinking how scary that is, and then just. You know, saying okay, like I'm, I'm looking up at you know a painting that they've painted on the ceiling, and I'm just going to think about that painting, and I'm going to write about that painting tonight. You know, and it's like, and then just to kind of plan out what I would write, it was just a way for my brain to focus. And um, I think it's so true what you've said.
1: Yeah, and and um, you know, uh, here's here's the example that always comes to my mind. I had a client yeah. who had two kinds of cancer, very young person, also. One kind was actually very dangerous. Um, the other was not so dangerous. Mm-hmm. But she went to both doctors at the same day at one point. Mm. And, um, the one that was more dangerous, they said, everything's fine for now. Keep doing what you're doing. The one that was less dangerous, they said, well, there's a little something going on, but we don't w- know what it is, and we, we aren't really going to do anything about it now. We're going to wait and see. Mm. And the, the one where it felt very uncertain totally freaked her out, even though the other thing that was going on was much more um, threatening. And, wow. I, and I think there's, I don't know if it's just this culture where we're taught to try to be in control and, you know, all that. Oh, I can't compare, sure. but, but there's something so disturbing about feeling there's nothing you can do. And Absolutely. if you feel there's something you can do, so for you, um, this artistic expression of your experience was always something you could do. Then
2: it's true, and I think one of the things that um, that you know my therapy lady um, you know speaks so much about, and and the some of the young adult programs I've gone to, the theme you know always really seems to focus around uncertainty and how hard that is, and you know particularly people with metastatic disease, you know that is. Um, that's just an incredibly difficult thing, and we we don't live in a culture that um, that deal that deals with uncertainty head on. You know, everything is you know we we like to plan and we like to you know it just speak in in definite terms and linear terms. And you know, when will you be better? And what you know? And it's it's just isn't that way in the cancer world. For so you know, in, in really in the world at all, <laughs> um, it's just that people you know with cancer kind of know
1: that. <laughs> right. Well, And I've actually had people, I had one client say she, ha- she was diagnosed with stage four
2: mm. cancer.
1: And she said, in a way, it's a relief. I'm not waiting for the shoe to drop. It yeah. already dropped, <laughs> which was very surprising, but uh, it made sense to me you know um that interpretation of it for her made sense to me okay i now i just go ahead and do those things you right. know um, of how much we hate uncertainty <laughs> isn't it isn't it yes. <laughs> yeah. um and i you know i think that's um that's something uh, uh, that's ongoing how do you live with the ongoing uncertainty um mm. Once you're once you're done with treatment and all of that, I've had people come to groups way past their treatment because they were having trouble dealing with with that, that just the uncertainty.
2: Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that's talked about enough in the you know in the cancer world. I think there's this kind of again people love the linear story that can be wrapped up and you know when's your treatment over? Congratulations, you're done. You beat it. It's over. Um, you know, and that I think a lot of people um, that I've spoken to when I articulated that I thought so much of of my trouble really came when treatment was over um, is that fear that, you know, you're kind of left alone and you're you're left alone in the world that gave you cancer and you don't know why. And so it's like it's a very scary thing. And I think there does need to be more talk about, um, you know, about supporting people after after that experience and
1: absolutely um, at UC, uh, UC San Francisco out here near me they are actually studying fear of recurrence as um, a particular oh, wow. thing because it's almost 100% there's almost no one who isn't uh For sure. once you know so i think that's uh, that's very familiar to me what you're saying that really there's a whole piece of work that people have to somehow do after they're done with the treatment, and it comes right. as a shock to a lot of people. It so goes. it's time and it's it's time for us. Oh, go ahead.
2: It's hard because, you know, I would joke that it's not like you want, you know, your doctor to say to you when you're first diagnosed, you know, you think this is hard. Well, just wait until you're done with your treatment. <laughs> you <know>? Right. <laughs> and there's no real way to warn of it, but I think that, you know, it is to have that support there knowing that people are going to need it after the fact is important.
1: Absolutely. Let's talk about that a little more when we come back. And listeners, you can go to my website or to the Good Grief Host page to find me. And to find Tara Schumann, go to TaraBeatsCancer.com. We'll be right back.
3: Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore
0: the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products
1: and healing methods that really work. Tune in to the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.
3: Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness.
0: You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now back to good grief.
1: Welcome back. I'm here with Tara Schumann, blogger and author of the book "Hope Is a Good Breakfast." And before the break, we were we were talking about how how uh, often people are unprepared for the kind of psychological, spiritual work that seems to come up after treatment is all done, fear of recurrence, what does this all mean, where do I put it <laughs> in my life? And you were saying that um, you wouldn't exactly want your doctor to say, you know, hey, this is going to hit you uh, later, you know, you because you're focused on the treatment at that point. But do you think um, there might be a way to introduce that that would be comforting, like you know, many people um, end up facing some questions afterwards, and be sure and get support for that. Or do you think there's a way that it could be talked about that that would be of value?
2: I, I definitely do, and I think that um, that you know there are definitely people working on doing that. I think that it just still is more of a um, of more of a kind of you know, get you in, get your treatment and, you know, and be done. And again, that's, that's for people that, you know, are lucky enough to, to potentially have a treatment that could cure them. And I think, you know, for people with metastatic disease, um, that's a whole different issue and that they really, you know, need ongoing support and in the mental health space. And, um, and it's really hard because, you know, they're so focused on the physical and, and sometimes just practically in a day, you know, long day of treatment, you don't, want to make another appointment, you know, and um, but I I just hope that, you know, people can can see the value in it because I think there really, really is a lot of value in it for so many people.
1: Well, I I think you said something important, too, when you said you're maybe now uh, a little more um, prepared to go to a group or, you know, that there's no time limit on that. That when we're ready to kind of look at certain things is very individual. Definitely. Um, I, Definitely, I had one client come to a group seven years later, and the reason she came was she said, "My fear of recurrence just isn't moving." Mm. You know, um, I ha- my life is back, you know, all that, but it's not. That is not evolving, and so I thought it was very um, courageous on her part that much after treatment to say hey I need something I haven't quite had yet <laughs> you know right. and and look for it that that seems um, it, that seems important to me that no matter when it is you can, you can look at those questions once you're willing to I guess
2: right and to not assume that I think a lot of people and I did this too is you know you, you say things like I shouldn't feel this way I know I shouldn't feel this way I know that I should be over it and it's I just think that we have to kind of take that out of the picture and, you know, people are different and it hits people at different times. And whether that's, you know, five years down the road or 10 years or, you know, when you see it happen to a friend, even though you've, it, I, whatever it is, I think we just have to be more open and accepting that, that people cope with these things in different ways and be supportive of that and not, you know, think that it happens on this, you know, set timeline because it just doesn't.
1: In, in a way, we're talking about the aspect of of any life-and-death situation, and that's any experience we feel that way, whether it is that way or not, is kind of an existential crisis in the sense of uh, the meaning I, I give to that is um, a crisis of what is life about.
2: You
1: know, in ways... In ways we may not ask at other times, yeah.
2: Definitely, and you know that's people. That's a big that's a big issue, and people need to process that in their own, you know, time and space. And I think we all just need to be more forgiving of ourselves and more forgiving of others, and um, you know, and just more accepting that it's people do it in different ways.
1: The flip side of that coin for me is all the ways in which it seems as if uh, you actively um, engaged with your experience in such a way that perhaps you're different in certain ways. And one thing I noticed that seemed to have happened after the book Mm -hmm. is that it appeared to me you had changed careers.
2: Um, is that accurate? Yes, it is. Um, I had been a teacher when I first graduated from college. um, And then I went to law school at night while I was teaching and um, ended up going to become a lawyer and be a lawyer. And, um, and I really, you know, I just kind of, I feel like cancer played a huge role in really making me face, you know, what, what do I want to do with my life? And, um, you know, I think there were some real, very clear moments, like snapshots I'll never forget in my, you know, in the last couple of years where I said, you know, if, if my cancer were to come back, you know, what do I want my time to look like? And it wasn't what I was doing. And, um, and I think that's, you know, while that's, you know, it, it's a scary way to live, a lot of those thoughts happened in, you know, in some dark, points but um and sadly you know watching friends go through some really difficult times um it was you know it was that confidence that i think i i got of you know this is it this is the life i have and you know if if i you know want to teach more than anything and that doesn't make sense to anyone else for financial reasons or whatever like it doesn't matter it's what i want to do um and so yeah so i i left my my lure job and i went back to teaching and so I have a job that I love more than anything,
1: (laughs) and and um, I guess what that speaks to in my mind is sort of the the illogic of rightness. You know, there are some the crazy things I've done that I knew I just had to do. Right. (laughs) Uh, You know, there was you know I could avoid it for a while, but I knew that was the direction I needed to go.
2: Totally. but it would have
1: it seemed nuts to everyone else i know because they told me um, <laughs> but but i don't regret any of those decisions yeah even i don't either the ones and i think that it just,
2: you know it does just any 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 experience you know whether it be cancer or like you said you know when you're really examining the the deeper questions in life it it just kind of it shakes you and shows you, you know, what do you really want? What do you really want to be? And, um, and then I think it just, you know, can give people the confidence to move in that direction that they just maybe wouldn't have done before. And I don't know that I would have had that confidence to shake it up that way. And, you know, um, and really, you know, financially, you know, <laughs> you know take such an enormous pay cut. Um, yeah. Th- those are two
1: uh, ends of a poll, I would think, attorney and teacher. In terms of economics. It's definitely significant,
2: um, (laughs) but but it's just, you know, I think that when you do what you love, there's, honestly, it just, money isn't, it's not a factor that, you know, yes, it plays in and, you know, I do other things to make sure that, you know, we'll be okay and my husband's a teacher also, so, you know, but I think when when you're doing what you love and you're happy every day, it's you can't, no money can buy that, you know? Um, so I just, I feel so blessed and I, um, it's school vacation week and there's not a single part of me that's dreading Monday. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's wonderful. I think that's such a, such an incredible, um, imprint on our children to do what we love too.
2: Oh, I, for sure. And like, I think one of the best, best compliments I get is with my kids my students will say, you know, that that they can tell I love my job. And it's just like yeah, it's yes, a blessing I want you for to them too. Love because that's where you go every day.
1: Yeah. Well, and and you tried something else, so I imagine you're keenly aware of how much you love it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Definitely. I I think the the last uh, piece you were going to share is is right on target with what we're talking about. Um, you know, in terms of what we get out of these. To my my little saying for clients is if bad things are going to happen anyway, we may as well make something out of them, mm. <laughs> you know. You. And I and I think this section sort of speaks to that um, that sense of whatever happens, you can find a response to it. Would you Would you read that?
2: Sure, sure. And in this section, I talk about Mary, who I'd written about earlier in the book, um, and she had been one of my pro bono clients I'd worked with. I'd done a lot of um, work with uh, immigration clients pro bono, and uh, this was one I had taken on before I knew of my own cancer, but she had um, metastatic breast cancer when I um, met her, and she was only given six months when I had met her, and she um, lived about a year and a half after that, so I talk about her in this section. That's just a little context. Um, Okay, so I write, to me, someone can beat cancer and die from it, too. In fact, my concept of beating cancer is indescribably more difficult to achieve than the traditional concept, which for most involves getting all of the cancer cells to go away. Because to me, beating cancer, like really beating it, takes more courage and love than I could ever explain. It takes more than sitting through a whole bunch of treatment, and trust me, that isn't easy. I've seen with my own eyes several people who have done it and are doing it, who have won and are winning over cancer in the way that I mean win. One of those people was Mary. Yes, Mary died of breast cancer, but breast cancer did not kill her spirit. Even in her last days, with the help of her loving family, Mary kept her dignity, her grace, and her inner strength. Even when she couldn't sit up, she somehow exuded beauty and peace. She loved her children, her husband, and her God, and she cared for all of them in the most loyal of ways. Mary beat cancer, even if her her obituary says otherwise. I've seen other people beat cancer too. I've seen a 20-something cancer patient become an oncology nurse practitioner on the floor where she was treated. I've seen two young mothers battle metastatic breast cancer while lighting up every room they enter and comforting those who are upset around them. I've seen a young mother adopt a third child and power through treatment for a recurrence. I made an incredible friend who had cancer while continuing to work full-time and make sick kids' wishes come true, literally. I met a fellow blogger who told me that his cancer will come back and when it does, he will beat it again. And I became friends with a young woman battling stage four triple positive breast cancer who told me that in a most unexpected way, she had never been happier than she was after her diagnosis. Some people may misinterpret this chapter's theme to be that age old saying, it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. But that isn't what I mean at all. What I mean is that even if my cancer were to return, and heaven forbid, if it were something that my body ultimately couldn't handle, I'd still expect to win. Call me stubborn or naive or just plain crazy, but if cancer took my life, I have hope that I could nevertheless save my spirit. That is what I think it means to beat cancer. That's
1: it. I I love Mm -hmm. the way you've put that. It it reminds me, I... I, um, uh, Sat with two people a lot when my wife um, was sick, Stephen and Andrea Levine, and mm. um, they talked many, many times about the difference between cure and healing. Mm. And that's what that that passage really makes me think about. That um, one can be healed either way. And interesting, yeah. Um, and that that's. Um, I think maybe the only only bottom line response to fear of recurrence is what you're talking about. Because there's no way to prevent that ultimately. Uh, Yeah. At least not so far.
2: (laughs) It's true. Um, I just, I do think that people with metastatic disease and friends who I went through treatment with who now face it again are just, I think, the challenge of mentally, you know, keeping hope and keeping faith, you know, that's something even I don't understand and can't fully fathom, you know, that um, I think that that's just a really, really significant, indescribably significant challenge, you know, to stay hopeful when you know that you have to live with this, you know, I call it intruder, but this, you know, this this killer inside you. Um, that's a really difficult thing, and, uh, you know, it's easy for me to write as, you know, from my perspective, but I still just really always like to make the point that I just can't imagine how difficult it is for people that are doing that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I haven't done it, but I've lived close to it because Mm. the kind of cancer my wife had was not curable. Mm. And so the whole time she had it, uh, which was 10 years, she Mm. was considered terminal.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, And there's something that sometimes breaks through in this area we're talking about. Um, by the time she died, we were not afraid. Wow. So I'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for being with me, Tara.
2: No, oh, thank you, Sharon. It's, been, it's, a it's been a pleasure.
1: And listeners, you can find Tara at tarabeatscancer.com. Next week, I'll welcome Sonika Marsha Ozdoba, whose book, The Soul with Two Voices, tells the story of losing her voice and her career as a professional musician and how she brought herself through it. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.